This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is All-American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It, which is, funnily enough, by me, Daniel Denver. It is often said that with the election of Donald Trump, nativism was raised from the dead. After all, here was a president who organized his campaign around a rhetoric of unvarnished racism and xenophobia. Among his first acts on taking office was to block foreign nationals from seven predominantly Muslim countries from entering the United States. But although his actions may often seem unprecedented, they are not as unusual as many people believe. This story doesn't begin with Trump. For decades, Republicans and Democrats alike have employed xenophobic ideas and policies, declaring time and again that, quote, illegal immigration is a threat to the nation's security, well-being, and future. The profound forces of all-American nativism have, in fact, been pushing politics so far to the right over the last 40 years that, for many people, Trump began to look reasonable. As Daniel Denver, me, argues, issues as diverse as austerity economics, free trade, mass incarceration, the drug war, the contours of the post-9-11 security state, and yes, Donald Trump and the alt-right movement, are united by the ideology of nativism, which binds together assorted anxieties and concerns into a ruthless political project. All-American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. By me, Daniel Denver. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This episode isn't about foreign policy in the sense that foreign policy is debated and discussed in Senate committees, Washington think tanks, or newspapers of record. There are, of course, countless dreadful logics at play in what the U.S. does in the world. But we shouldn't take grand strategists and mandarins at their word or read them on their own terms. The invasion of Iraq was built, after all, in significant part upon a homegrown ideology, neoconservatism's zealous utopianism, which drew on the deeply rooted ideology of American exceptionalism. America, the idea goes, is not constrained by normal geopolitical limits, but rather makes reality through its actions. Today, Donald Trump likewise believes that he doesn't respond to reality. He believes that his own thoughts and utterances are what make reality. This, as with so many other things that so offend establishment liberal propriety, did not come out of nowhere. They came in large part from establishment politics as we have known them. My guest today is returning guest Nikhil Paul Singh, and we are discussing his book, Race and America's Long War. 
and the often neglected but entirely critical domestic side to U.S. foreign policy. Indeed, Singh argues that this very sharp division between domestic and foreign that we take to be a fundamental one, in fact, functions to obscure how profoundly our politics here shape our actions there, and also obscures how those actions are an extension of a long war here in North America that made and continues to make the United States what it was and is through settler colonialism and other forms of racist and capitalist domination. American exceptionalism, in turn, is rooted in a commitment to American innocence. And this has been all too clear in the U.S. attacks on Iran. The U.S. has overthrown the governments of Iran's neighbors in Iraq and Afghanistan and has troops stationed in both, and also in Kuwait, Syria, Turkey, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Oman, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and Bahrain all while the Trump administration has shredded the nuclear accord and applied sanctions that are devastating Iran's economy, and then attacking Iranian-backed militia forces in Iraq, and then the assassination of a top Iranian official. Americans can't understand that the aggressor is the United States, the country which helped overthrow the Iranian government in 1953 and then helped Iraq wage an atrociously vicious war against the country in the 1980s. Many Americans can't see this in part because American violence has its roots in a settler colonial project that framed indigenous people resisting Western expansion as, in the words of our Declaration of Independence, quote, the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Today, they would be called terrorists. On a side note, we all get caught up in the news cycle, particularly given that outlets like CNN shape the news cycle to make profits and then cynical politicians exploit it to their own perceived ends. But I wanted to briefly update you on the Bernie organizing we have going on right here in my tiny state of Rhode Island, perhaps to inspire you to do similar work wherever it is that you live. Since we have a late primary, we are organizing for New Hampshire and then Massachusetts and then Rhode Island. We had hundreds last week at our kickoff rally and signed people up to get on buses to New Hampshire. You, too, can do this sort of organizing on your own, wherever you are. You don't have to wait for the Bernie campaign to initiate it. They will support you if you get organized. Students here in Rhode Island are hosting a Students for Bernie kickoff rally at the Columbus Theater in Providence on January 28th, featuring Kianga Yamada-Taylor and Linda Sarsour. I'll include information on that event in the show notes. And the day before that... On January 27th, I'll be doing a live dig interview with Kianga at Brown University on her book, Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership. I'll also include that info in the show notes. And before we get rolling, this podcast is, aside from some money for ads, 
overwhelmingly supported by listeners like you who support us at patreon.com slash the dig. It's a website for those of you who don't know where you can make monthly donations to support stuff that you like, like this podcast. It's very simple. You go to the website and you put in your bank or credit card information and then it charges you and you support The Dig as a result. We don't paywall any episodes because we do this podcast very much for the purpose of raising political consciousness and sharpening analysis to help all of you out there better understand the world as you fight to change it. And that means that we need those of you who can afford to support this podcast to do so so that everyone can listen regardless of their ability to pay. We also, though, have free left-wing books to send you in the mail to say thank you if you contribute at least $10 a month. One of those books is my new book, which is now out, All-American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. Please take a quick, fast moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Also, I have book tour dates to announce. I'm starting off in Brooklyn on Friday, January 24th at 7 p.m. at the Verso Loft in conversation with Aziz Rana. I'll put the Facebook event for this and whatever other events I have Facebook events for in the show notes. On January 31st, I'm here in Providence at Riff Raff Books. Then, on February 5th, I'll be in Madison, Connecticut, right near New Haven, at R.J. Julia Booksellers. On February 24th, I'm back in my beloved Philadelphia at the Wooden Shoe. On February 26th, I'll be in my hometown, Washington, D.C., at Solid State Books. On February 28th, I'll be in Baltimore at Red Emma's. On March 4th, I'll probably be in Boston. Stay tuned for details. On March 11th, I'll be in New Orleans at Octavia Books for a discussion with Thea Riofrancos on both my book and her co-authored book, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Then I'll be heading to Houston, Austin, Dallas, San Antonio, and McAllen, Texas. So far, my confirmed dates are on March 17th in Austin at Monkey Wrench Books and on March 18th in Dallas at Deep Vellum Books. Stay tuned for more dates in the Southwest and West Coast, and then later on elsewhere in the country. And please get in touch directly if you haven't already and would like to help out. A bunch of DSA chapters already have. Okay, here's Nikhil Paul Singh a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at New York University and non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. His most recent book is Race in America's Long War from University of California Press. Nikhil Paul Singh, welcome back to The Dig. Uh, Thanks, Dan. I appreciate being on your show. You write, quote, 
By expanding the use of unmanned armed drones in targeted assassinations, Obama added a new and terrifying dimension. The arrogation of the right of the U.S. president to kill anyone anywhere in the world without due process suggests a government that regards itself above and beyond the law. Your book is full of prescient passages, and this is very much one of them. After Qasem Soleimani's assassination, the New York Times reported, quote, The Obama administration developed the idea that what counts as an imminent threat, which permits violent acts undertaken in self-defense, can be stretched for terrorists who are continuously planning attacks from the shadows so that they can be struck during any fleeting opportunity, even if they pose no literally imminent threat at that moment. My question is, how did Obama build upon Bush's machinery of war, and, and how did he depart from it? Because it seems, ironically, that Obama innovated U.S. war making in such a way that it made it perfectly suited to Trump's variant of militarism, whatever that variant is. Mm-hmm. It, it's too bad that most Democrats failed to, to offer any sort of opposition at the time, and now this is being used to assassinate not just non-state terrorists, but a foreign leader. It's, a, it's an important question, and it's also an ironic one, because we know that Obama was elected in many ways in 2008 as the anti-war candidate. He promised to close Guantanamo. He promised to end torture. He promised to draw down American involvement in wars. And to some degree, he tried to do some of these things and ultimately failed to do almost all of them. But I think what has been missed is the way in which Obama was an innovator in continuing to develop the use of force with impunity that began to take on a more elastic character, beginning with the the Iraq War. There were legal and technological innovations. Uh, Under Bush, the enemy combatant was a key innovation one that restored, through a sort of dubious legality, colonial prerogatives to use force against enemies, understood to have no rights we were bound to respect, and who we could thereby torture and kill with impunity. Um, And of course, the second innovation was the expansion of the logic of imminent threat that you have already referenced, which justified preventative action. You know, and that's already implicit in the Iraq War. You know, when Condoleezza Rice makes right. the the famous uh, remark, you know, this we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. I mean, she's basically saying if we don't go to war, we might all be exterminated in the next, you know, in the next minute. So this sort of use of imminent threat, this sort of ticking bomb scenario, a lot of ideas that were were drawn from the Israeli experience and Israeli legal legal precedents, the, the so-called Bethlehem Doctrine. Many of these, these ideas are circulating and being codified, and Obama adapts them to the drone war. So if there are kind of legal innovations that expand executive power and the use of force with impunity uh, that inaugurate the war on terror, the drone war becomes a way of of advancing that through a technological innovation, which allows for a kind of riskless and frictionless killing, a killing in which American soldiers are remote, uh, in which no harm will come to them, in which it's just really about pushing a button. This sort of McKinsey-style smooth operation of empire that might 
appeal to Mayor Pete, but uh, it, within that technocratic framework, there Trumpist foreign policy is lurking just beneath the surface somehow. That's right. That's right. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, you remember that it was the Obama administration that carried out the unprecedented extrajudicial killing of Anwar al-Awlaki and his son, both U.S. citizens residing in Yemen, and the father accused of being an, an al-Qaeda leader, quote-unquote, but under the flimsiest of legal pretexts. And at the time, the ACLU remarked, you know, that this introduced a situation in which, on the order of the president, Americans could be killed without the president having to account to anyone outside of the executive branch. This is something that the law professor, the cerebral, supposedly thoughtful Obama, who promised to draw down wars and restore some probity to American policy, essentially handed over to Donald Trump, right? He just handed over this kind of authority. And so with the Soleimani killing, you kind of see another iteration of this. If if the threshold of citizenship didn't protect someone from extrajudicial assassination, Al-Waki was an American citizen, nor did the fact that Soleimani was a state official of a state with whom we have no formal declaration of hostilities. So the, the again, to go back to the earlier point, the expansive logic of the enemy combatant, which basically said, because terrorists obey no laws of war, and they're, they're not legitimate combatants, they're not party of any state to which they can be held accountable, we don't have to respect any rights that they might have, proves to be a very slippery slope. Not only do we not have to respect the rights of enemy combatants, we don't have to respect the rights of American citizens, and we don't have to respect the rights of foreign officials. The executive branch can essentially use force without any kind of restraint on the logic of imminent threat, which proves to be, again, fully elastic. Is it, is it tomorrow? Is it next month? Is it next year? There's, there's no account or a sort of questioning of that logic that, that sort of brings it to heel. And then we find ourselves in this situation where, where what's essentially happened is the murder of a representative of the government of a sovereign state in the absence of any legal grounds for that action. The cerebral constitutional law professor who agonized over each and every decision to kill, and that was supposed to make it all okay, but in retrospect, what he was doing was was engineering a new machinery of war that not only was he abusing, both inherently and and in practical, discrete instances, but is now in the hands of of Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing, and you know, I'm not a I'm not a law professor, or legal scholar. I read the legal scholars who are engaged in conversations about international law and the laws of war. And I find them very interesting. And they're very thoughtful, very smart people. And there are discussions that unfold on websites like Just Security and the Lawfare blog and things like that, right? But I just sometimes now find myself glazing over, you know, because it's like 20 years later and we still have an open-ended authorization to use military force that somehow can be slid through time and apply to the next situation. And then we have this kind of this kind of creeping rationalization for preventative action that overcomes every and any hurdle that might have been placed in, in its way. And the the you know the law professors are left to, you know, decry this at each turn 
but uh, we're completely powerful, powerless to seemingly completely powerless to change it, you know, unless the Congress reasserts its authority over war making, you know, and obviously that's something that a lot of us are calling for. Um, and it's not necessarily clear that that is in itself a solution, but it certainly would be a first step. And we're in terms of of that we're in this bizarre situation where the house at the the time of this recording just passed a concurrent resolution that would invoking the war powers act that would call on trump to you know cease hostilities with iran but because of the way this has all developed a concurrent resolution which just requires a simple majority avoids the threat of trump's veto but is also perceived as being purely symbolic That's and right. then in a resolution that would actually be able to hypothetically stop Trump would require a supermajority to overcome his veto. And so the bipartisan political establishment has spent the last few decades eviscerating Congress's power to declare war. And all that remains is a highly questionable power that Trump and his predecessors have indicated that they would ignore if it was ever invoked to to stop a war. (laughs) And the arguments also from the, you know, from the side that now says it wants, it wants once again, probity and limitation on executive power, you know, they end up being so weak and formalistic and legalistic. So they all start with, oh, Soleimani was a bad man with blood on his hands, American blood on his hands, you know. It's a good thing that he's dead, right? So you start your argument against a targeted assassination by saying, actually, it was a good thing. Now, this is this is such a weak way uh, and a hypocritical way to approach these kinds of questions. And people see right through it. So you then have a senator like Jack Reed from Rhode Island essentially saying, well, if the Iranians strike back hard, we're going to really have no choice but to continue this. And you could see how this would just they would just fold like a house of cards if uh, any serious hostilities emerged. And suddenly we would be in a situation where it was like, well, yeah, of course we have to go to war. And, 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 and for the most part, a lot of people in Congress would line up behind it, maybe a majority at this point. I don't know. I don't know. But I have no faith that the country can't once again be sort of maneuvered into a position where war seems like the only reasonable way to approach the situation. And what you just mentioned in terms of the so many Democrats with Bernie Sanders being a notable exception coming out clearly and calling it an assassination and not having to say, oh, he was a bad guy. But it concedes the the, the premise and the terms of the debate to the militarists. So any sort of like equivocating anti-war position isn't going to work because once you've conceded the premise, you're battling on the enemy's terrain, which is a losing way to fight. And this is just basic kind of like George Lakoff political linguistics, like don't think of an elephant. Don't think of a Suleimani was a bad guy. That's not the place to start. That's Trump's place to start. If you come out with a principled argument that assassinating the state leaders of countries in the world who have legitimacy, and you can do that with the flimsiest of arguments about your own self-defense, that this is not going to be like a dramatically destabilizing kind of action. If you can't come out and clearly say that it's unethical, that it's beneath us, that it's even cowardly, I mean, we might even sort of say that to launch a Reaper drone at somebody who is traveling openly at an airport 
in public is itself an act of terrorism. Of course, we think because we are state actors and we're using these advanced technologies that we can't possibly be engaged in terrorist action. But this is where the double standard com comes in. And yet to say this, and even me saying this in, 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 on a public radio show, really risks being called all kinds of you know, horrible things, terrorist sympathizer, all the way down the line, you know, unpatriotic. Maybe, maybe some Republican in Congress will say that I should be stripped of my citizenship because I give aid and comfort to the enemy. I mean, we're sort of descending back into that kind of a discourse. And so Democrats are understandably, and, and opponents of war are understandably skittish, lest they be tarred with that brush. But we've got to have a little bit more courage of our own convictions at this point. And kudos to Bernie, you know, for at least calling this what it was. You know, one doesn't need to have and a not being terrified of Liz Cheney calling you names. That's right. <laughs> not being terrorized, terrified of Liz Cheney or some random, you know, GOP congressman, you know, saying that you're, you know, you're some kind of, um, you know, you're some kind of subhuman yourself, you know, but this is what we've descended into. We have not been able to to reckon with the recklessness and unethical character of our own foreign policy, our own conduct in the world, and the consequences of that unethical and reckless action. And, you know, I don't think it's very hard to make the case. I think most people understand it when you make the case about the Iraq War Anyone who's taken any look at the internal documents about the Afghan war, the so-called Afghan papers, understands this. Anyone who takes the measure of the legacies of American torture and war crimes over the last 20 years understands this. Anyone who looks at the regional consequences of American war making in the Middle East understands this. Why should we give any credit to the idea after the last 20 years of experience, that we operate with sense, reason, and morality in our foreign policy, particularly when it comes to military action. This really fundamentally has to change, and we really fundamentally have to be willing to take the hit for making the arguments that need to be made to change it. And I really do think this is something that the majority of people in this country, in the United States, actually do understand. It's possible to be patriotic and love your country and also see where your country goes wrong, uh, see where your country does not act appropriately or morally or ethically. What we've seen so many Democrats do is argue that it's, you know, legally or technocratically problematic, this assassination, but ethical, but ethically okay to kill a foreign leader because that foreign leader is a bad guy. But then what? where does that lead? What kind of guy is Trump? What kind of government is the U.S. government? And ironically, this is something that Trump has indicated he understands on some level. In 2017, maybe I think you'll recall, he was being impressed by Bill O'Reilly, of all people, over his fond words for Putin. And mm -hmm. O'Reilly says, Putin is a killer. And Trump responds, there are a lot of killers. We have a lot of killers. Well, you think our country is so innocent? Honestly, this this was the refreshing thing about Trump, and I think people understand 
that about him. And it, it again, it kind of horrifies the sort of beltway liberals and, and, you know, blobbists in, in DC who, who sort of, you know, want to couch every American action in the kind of the a kind of a haloed morality. And Trump has really, really rejected that. And to his credit, that's true. Um, you know, but to get back to kind of some of the, the, the sort of analogies that might help us to understand the consequences and what this killing actually means. And everybody who paid attention saw the massive outpouring for Soleimani in, in Iran, millions of people mourning, even people who may have opposed him politically, because he was seen as a national hero, a national hero of the Iran-Iraq war, which almost destroyed the country in the, the 1980s, in which the United States was arming Iraq against Iran. People know their history, right? People understand these things. So what if somebody uh, assassinated David Petraeus for the blood that's on his hands in the Middle East? You know, what if some state actor said, well, David Petraeus is, you know, he was the head of the CIA. He was prosecuting a counterinsurgency. He has blood on his hands. That's the kind of figure that Soleimani was. I mean, what if somebody... But even, bi but even bigger, we don't really have a national hero in that way. In some ways, right. Even even bigger. I mean, even bigger and more more consequential. It's not a it's not a one for one. But you know, the 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 thought experiment that I'm trying to do here is to kind of say, what would it mean to actually put ourselves in the shoes of other people, right? And how they view the situations that they find themselves in. Imagine if Iranians were interfering in the internal affairs of Mexico. Uh, imagine if Iran was landing troops in Mexico. The, the Iranians have the U.S. military on both sides of its border, in the Afghan war and in the Iraq war. After having participated, after having understood that the United States was responsible, going back to the 1950s, in overthrowing their democratically elected leader, Mohammad Mossadegh, in 1953, and then supporting the rep repressive regime of the Shah of Iran for the next two decades, including training his secret police. The United States then opposes the 1979 revolution, allows the Shah into the United States at the pest of Chase Manhattan Bank president for medical care, and then goes on to support Saddam Hussein in a catastrophic eight-year war against Iran that lasts for most of the 1980s including the use of chemical weapons. Then in 1988, the U.S. Navy shoots down a commercial Iranian airliner, killing everyone on board. I think it's 290 people. And then decorating the Navy captain responsible for it. Then there's the invasions of Iraq and the invasions of Iraq by ideologues who say, well, we may be going to Iraq now, but real men go to Tehran. So telegraphing the idea that this is the prelude to war with Iran in the future. And of course, we know that this is what the neocons have always wanted. They tried to link Iran to 9-11 in 2003, speciously. And Mike Pence just did it again the other day in a tweet. And then after the possibilities of rapprochement with Iran and creating an agreement that Iran was abiding by around limiting its nuclear program and its nuclear ambitions, we've pursued crippling economic sanctions against them. 
So just try to think of what all of that means. This is this is not to exonerate Iran and its conduct and how it responds to these things, but this is a this is an asymmetrical power relationship in which the United States has largely been the aggressor from the Iranian perspective. And now this assassination happens. Well, could anything better and more surreally encapsulate the way that the U.S. creates a framework that not only perpetuates direct violence, but indirectly facilitates violence from all sorts of different actors than Iran apparently shoot accidentally shooting down this civilian jetliner because they were preparing for U.S. military strikes against their airport? I mean, it's insane. Oh yeah, I mean it seems it seems to me that this is this is this is a clear instance of of a kind of collateral consequence and a collateral consequence of of a reckless US action and of a, a ultimately um a beleaguered and relatively weak Iranian regime that does not want war with the United States, I'm sure, knowing that they would be obliterated as Hillary Clinton once said she would do but that is skittish and now off balance and unsure of what what might be coming so i mean it's very easy to see that 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 kind of a thing could happen and it's obviously horrific and 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 horrible and and um and should be condemned you know it should be condemned for for what it was but this is this is this is where we now find ourselves and this is this is all this is all the fruit of the kind of you know the poisoned the poisoned approach that the United States has taken to this region going back quite a long time, uh, but certainly since the Trump administration withdrew from the Iran uh, nuclear agreement, which was the one really significant foreign policy achievement of the Obama administration. Well, yeah, I want to ask about that. How, how do we make sense of this conflict emerging out of Trump and the American rights rejection of the Iran nuclear deal? Because it's become common sense that liberals supported, conservatives opposed it, but it's actually not so obvious why that is, because after all, it formalized Iran's subjugation within the U.S.-led global order. It said there are certain states that get to have nuclear weapons, the top dogs, and Iran doesn't get to have them. In exchange, Iran gets to become a normal country or head down the path to becoming a normal country. Well, was it just that the deal was Obama's or was it something deeper about the need to have Iran as a nemesis? Because it's not... It's hard to determine whether there's something that we might call a strategy at play. After all, with the the assassination of Soleimani, and we shouldn't forget before that, the thing that started it all, this the attack that killed a huge number of members of an, an Iranian-backed Iraqi militia, this is at, came at a time when there were massive protests against the Iranian government in both Iran and Iraq. And then the U.S. actions immediately united people against the United States. What do you make of it? <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I mean, clearly with Trump, it's partly that it's about Obama. Okay. And this this gets into some of the messiness of how American foreign policy gets made. Because it's been for quite a while that US elites have used foreign policy to manipulate domestic politics or as a response to what are actually domestic political triggers. So that doesn't really make for strong thinking about how we should be acting in the world strategically. So I want to come back to that in a minute. 
But you may you may remember upon the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Soviet foreign spokesman, foreign policy spokesman Georgi Arbatov said, "We have done the most terrible thing to you that we could have possibly done. We have deprived you of an enemy." Um, and the Cold War enemy was very central to organizing, you know, a very comprehensive global strategy, responding to what were seen as communist insurgencies with various kinds of counterforce all over the world. And of course, it led to all kinds of overreach and recklessness uh, on the U.S. part, most dramatically in the catastrophic war in Vietnam. And the catastrophic war in Vietnam really should have been the end of that framework, but the framework survived because the organization of American policy through the idea of an enemy was very useful and important to allowing America to project its power throughout the world. Okay, so projecting power throughout the world was clearly something that the United States decided it needed to do after World War II in the interests of essentially uh, protecting the world for capitalist corporations, protecting access to natural resources, protecting international trade, allowing some of its former rivals and allies to recover so that we would have people to buy our things, right? And it, it was a, it was understood as, as, as really requisite to a world capitalist order for the first time. And the United States sees itself as as responsible, the responsible guardian or guarantor of that order, right? But the Soviet enemy really becomes a crucial piece of this story. And so when that enemy disappears uh, at the end of the Cold War, there's kind of a drift in American policy, right? And there's a casting about to find a new enemy, so I think that that's that's definitely a part of the story here of the kind of the kind of need to continually generate new enemies, you know, new new figures of nemesis. And of course, the global war on terror really I think when 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 that happened they really thought the kind of people who are who are thinking along these lines, particularly the neocons and the people who are part of the project for a new American century, which included the Bushes and Cheneys and Condoleezza Rices and so forth, you know, they they really saw it as as Rice herself said as a moment of opportunity to really now decisively orient kind of American sort of unilateral unipolar power in the world um, to to the ends of kind of completing in some ways some of the tasks of of global integration in the interest of capital accumulation. Let me ask you a follow-up on that. President George H.W. Bush, you note, declared that the first Gulf War demonstrated that the U.S. had, quote, kicked the Vietnam syndrome. Mm -hmm. If the first Gulf War kicked the Vietnam syndrome, what syndrome did the war on terror kick? Well, I think the first Gulf War didn't really kick the Vietnam syndrome. You know, I think that the first Gulf War was seen, especially by Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney, as kind of not going far enough. I think that it was Wolfowitz who said, you know, seeing the the um, Saddam's armies kind of roll back in over his, you know, the the people who were opposing opposing him during that time, uh, was the equivalent of standing by and and watching a mugging. You know, it was an interesting choice of metaphor. Um, you know, they they wanted regime change, 
in that war, uh, the, the, the neocons. And it was, as you remember, Colin Powell who said, you know, well, if we, if we break Iraq, then we own it, you know, and Powell, was, <laughs> Powell was supposedly the one who was kind of, who had kind of learned the lessons of Vietnam, you know, that you, you can't have a kind of open-ended occupation nation building project, unless you're really willing to make a, a massive commitment of material, of troops, of, um, of resources, and, and with the public behind you. And they didn't think they had that. So it ended up being, being limited. And of course, then the claim that we had kicked the Vietnam syndrome was really about, well, we, we show that we've shown that we can use American military force again in the world towards very specific kinds of ends and be successful. Um, and to some degree, you, you could say that was borne out but for many of the, 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 the men, Rumsfeld, Cheney, and Wolfowitz in particular, who were involved in that war, um, it was unfinished business. You know? And with George W. Bush, they found, they found the, right, the right instrument to finish the job. And of course, 9-11 provided the, the trigger, provided the, the pretext. And of course, it was purely pretextual because they all knew that Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. And that was the big fraud of the war, right? Was was connecting, trying to connect, persistently trying to connect 9-11 to Iraq and why we needed to now have a big war in Iraq with the belief that it too could be accomplished relatively quickly and really, really show how American martial purpose could be put towards, you know, not just these kind of limited objectives of preventing, you know, a cross-border invasion of you know Iraq against Kuwait um, and sort of restoring the status quo, but in actually changing the status quo, in reorganizing the region, in creating new opportunities for investment, in creating new pathways for development, but all within the kind of American kind of organized and controlled system. You know, and this is also, I think, where where some of the the paradoxes emerge because you know, you could say that, that, and this goes back to something you were saying earlier about Obama and, and the Iran deal, because the Iran deal did, in many ways, organize Iran into an American-dominated system. You know, and of course, the Israelis have nuclear weapons, so um, Iran would still be well behind Israel in that sense. Arguably, much more money can be made from an Iran that is allowed to trade and develop its economy but the concern of the hawks is, is that if Iran gains too much regional power and importance, um, it will become a security threat. Um, and to some degree, there are reasons to, to sort of support that, that view, at least from the Israeli perspective or the Saudi perspective, because Iran could be a very powerful state in that region uh, and is a very powerful state in that region. But it is by no means a threat to the United States. But a prosperous and independent Iran directing its own policy, much like a prosperous and independent China, you know, which Obama also sought to restrain through the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which the Trump administration ripped up, they do begin to transform the architecture of a system in which the United States has been the radiating center for the last 75 years, right? There's no new American century in a world in which other states now have considerable power and ability to direct the course of their own policies and have a kind of economic sufficiency that allows them to do it. 
So, you know, I think that's that's sort of one of the ways in which you can't say that American power is simply about sort of supporting global capitalism. It's supporting a very particular kind of cap, kind of stratified system of capitalism in which there are embedded hierarchies that the United States also wants to preserve. And so one of the problems becomes how do you organize policy in a way that allows you to to maintain the hierarchies that um, that have been established to your favor within the system, you know, and ultimately that is what's that's what started to really break down. I think. Before we get any further along, I I want to ask you more about Trump in particular. You write quote. Though Trump indicated a rejection of liberal internationalism in the name of non-intervention, his stated admiration of Andrew Jackson might also be viewed as a signal of renewing what one historian terms an imperialism beyond the liberal variant. Trump was for a long time described as an isolationist, which of course infuriated militarists like Bill Kristol, but that is always so clearly not been the right term for Trump. And maybe this lack of clarity is rooted in the fact that American foreign policy is is often bifurcated along these simplistic lines of interventionist versus isolationist or things like that. So my, my question is, what is Trump's foreign policy and what is it drawing from? Because I, th- I also think the fact that Trump is a, a deeply weird combination of half genius and half very, very stupid person makes it tough to figure out. It is tough to figure out because in in many ways, I think, I I can't imagine that Trump wouldn't have seen Soleimani's funeral and had some buyer's remorse. Like, why the hell did we do that? I mean, Trump's somebody who's got in front of the United Nations and said, nationalism is a good thing. You know, nations should be allowed to be proud and strong and, and, and act according to their interests. Well, there you have it. You know, Iranian nationalism on display, you you help make it possible. A country that was riven by protests one day is now united in mourning the next. So there's a kind of oddity of Trump as a kind of as a as a nationalist militarist leader of an imperial liberal empire. Right. And the United States really is a, an, a liberal imperial empire after World War II. It's trying to establish rules favorable to its own centrality, but it's also trying to establish rules that everybody will in some ways abide by. It's the Soviet nemesis that kind of keeps that all in check and allows that to allows that to sort of go on for as long as it does. Um, but when that breaks apart, you know, and when when we're deprived of the enemy, there's a kind of there's a kind of strategic confusion. And you may even remember back to the beginning of the Bush administration, they were testing out China as the new nemesis. You know, and back in the 1980s, they were testing out Japan as the nemesis, the the potential new nemesis. You know, it's not been clear, you know, what to do next. And part of the reason it's not clear what to do next is because our own internal politics are so divided. Right. And our own internal politics have in many ways always been divided. And this gets back to an earlier point that I was trying to make that I don't think I got to finish, which is that U.S. elites use foreign policy to manipulate domestic politics. And that that's kind of the decadent part of American policy. The outer world always matters less 
and the consequences of our actions there in terms of those on the receiving end, but also in terms of the potential blowback on the American public, is never really being reckoned with. You know, and at the same time, I think it's the internal American partisan political and ethno-racial conflicts that give U.S. foreign policy such an intensely volatile character. Like we were talking about before, accusations of being unpatriotic, suborning terrorists, stabbing the military in the back and so forth, going all the way back to to the, the, the right's real entry into the scene of international relations is, is Joe McCarthy holding up a list of people in the State Department who are communists, right? And uh, uh, accusing people in the State Department of being responsible for what they call the loss of China, the fact that China had a revolution, which had very little to do with the United States, and hardly was something that the United States could have clearly changed the course of. But suddenly now we're responsible for the loss of China. But in many ways, that's all about a domestic partisan conflict. And it's that right-wing militarist tradition that gets called isolationist that McCarthy is certainly also a part of that really is the tradition of Trump. It's the tradition of kind of hostility to rule-bound international order that seems to not rebound enough to American advantage, you know, and in the Cold War, this, this tendency, you know, was always chafing at the sort of idea of containment, you know, that we weren't going far enough, we weren't hitting our enemies hard enough, we weren't dropping nukes on North Korea, you know, North Korea, I mean, the Korean, I mean, on Korea, not North Korea, excuse me, the Korean War was seen, for example, as a too limited war, you remember. Uh, Douglas MacArthur, who was the great hero of the right, wanted to go across the Yalu River and, you know, and, and, and take the war to China. And of course, the Chinese fought back and drove, drove the American army back, right, to the, you know, I'm not remembering all the specific details of the war. But the point being that there was a, a, a brokered, you know, a brokered ceasefire in North Korea, I mean, Korea, sorry, remains divided to this day as a kind of site of Cold War, Cold War stalemate, you know, and in many ways, the Korean War is the prelude to the, the next big Asian war in Vietnam, where, you know, Lyndon Johnson goes into Vietnam, in part because he's afraid of looking weak, and looking like the president that lost Southeast Asia, like Truman had lost China, or the Truman and the Democrats had lost China. Johnson's much more concerned about his domestic projects, the war on poverty, you know, the civil rights legislation, but he ends up sort of locked into this, this massive war in Vietnam that essentially destroys his presidency and rips apart the country, you know, in part because he doesn't want to appear politically vulnerable or to become politically vulnerable. So there's a way in which American politics has this kind of domestic, foreign character all the time. It's not that American political elites and foreign policymakers are thinking, how do we best act in the world according to our strategic, economic, political interests? It's how do we calculate our political economic interests in light of domestic issues and ramifications, uh, our electoral prospects, 
our conflicts with our rivals at home, and then I think secondarily, how is this going to play out in the world? And the, the, the world consequences and the consequences for people on the receiving end of American foreign policy and particularly American military action are secondary to the domestic questions that Americans are reckoning with. And these domestic questions are leading people to do all kinds of reckless things. And I think this is what's happened with Trump, because I don't think Trump's instincts actually in this moment are about starting a new war. You know, there there seems to be right now, at least for the moment, kind of palpable relief and an effort to kind of overread the Iranian reaction as a non-reaction, you know, that they are standing down and that, you know, this was in fact you know, a, an escalatory move meant to de-escalate the situation. But nobody really is in control of this. You know, and the fact that, that he could be maneuvered into this kind of an action, uh, that, you know, the likes of John Bolton and Pompeo, who are arch-neocons, really wanted to see him do and to really forever poison, or at least for the foreseeable future, the possibility of rapprochement with, with Iran actually makes the likelihood of war in the future greater, not less, you know, and I think, I think that's the, the really scary thing. In 1999, George W. Bush said, quote, America has never been an empire. We may be the only great power in history that had the chance and refused. American steadfast commitment to, to, to believing that we are victims when, in fact, our country is the world's most powerful aggressor is, I think, reading your book, that the product of this distinctly settler colonialist form of political psychosis. You write, quote, perhaps the active disconnect between the foreign and the domestic is where we must look if we are to understand the evolution of empire in the U.S. global age, not the refusal of the temptations of empire, but the equally persistent claim never to have been one. And, quote, if there is one constant in the history of American expansionism, it is this discourse of disavowal. How is American exceptionalism informed by this powerful insistence on and commitment to American innocence? And how is that denial, in turn, rooted in this more foundational denial of internal settler colonialism, an empire, which which thus allows for this false divide that you're talking about between the domestic and the foreign. And finally, I know this is a million part question. Finally, has Trump in some sense stopped disavowing? Because, for example, Iraq now wants U.S. troops out. And now the U.S. seems to be saying no, which totally undermines the pretense that we are there at the invitation of the Iraqi people. No, I think Trump, I mean, it's it's ironic that Trump might end up butting up against the sort of limits of really moving the United States kind of massive military industrial complex beyond or out, you know, to, 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 you know, beyond the kind of imperial frame. I mean, he, you know, we, we overestimate, we, we overestimate the power of the president. Let's be honest. You know, war is one of the things the executive can do in a dysfunctional political system. And this, in one sense, Bush was right, better to fight the terrorists over there than to find ourselves fighting them over here. You know, what he failed to do was look in the mirror 
and see how our policies both manifest and contribute to the ongoing creation of, of terror, right, uh, which now functions as kind of the new, the new permanent enemy. But to get back to Trump, I mean, I think Trump calls himself a nationalist. You know, I think Obama was much more consciously a kind of imperial manager. And I think that the Bush administration pursued an imperial policy, which that they were in, in disavowal of. But to unpack the question, I think we, we almost need sort of a, a much longer sort of history lesson, right? I mean, there, there are at least three arcs of U.S. empire. There's, there's the territorial empire, the project of national expansion across a continent, which includes multiple wars with indigenous polities, removals, treaties that are made and then broken, settlers that move in and seize land and then claim statehood and incorporate into the, the, the kind of larger national body, wars with other sovereign nations like Mexico, where territory, massive amounts of territory are seized, seized and so on, right? This is the 19th century story. This is the Jacksonian story because Jackson is a crucial architect of American expansion in the Southwest, in Indian removal, and in the kind of assertion of a nationalism that's built around the idea of West Western land as the kind of safety valve for an American population seeking wealth and abundance and development and growth and so forth, right? So that that territorial expansionist project really is the first century of the of the history of the United States. And then when the frontier closes, you know, there's a so-called acknowledgement of the closing of the frontier, which the completion of the transcontinental railroad after the Civil War, the reaching of the Pacific shores and all of that. And that is the moment that the United States really does turn to overseas empire for the first time in a really clear way um, with the Philippine War, with the the discussions that begin around the annexation of Hawaii, which takes a long time to happen, um, with the the occupations in the Caribbean, which includes you know the Platt Amendment with Cuba, which is still in force, which is why we have Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, our sort of sworn enemy, the occupation of Haiti, which lasts for decades. You know, there, there's a there. The historian Daniel Immerwar has called it the Greater United States. Um, all the populations in different parts of the world that are kind of in in now this kind of far flung empire that the United States does not acknowledge. Now, eventually, that that shifts because that overseas empire is seen as something that is very you know, very unstable and very tricky for the United States. There's a lot of opposition to it. There's not opposition to territorial expansion, but there is opposition to the idea that the United States should be holding the Philippines, for example. And a lot of that opposition takes on a very racist character. Like, do we want all of these, you know, benighted people as like part of our polity? And if if we don't... Because then Filipinos can immigrate to the United States and that excites a profound anti-Filipino racist nativist exactly, sentiment. Exactly, right? So that sort of is the second phase. And then the third phase of the United States empire is the empire of bases, right? And the empire of bases really develops after World War II, but it's an extraordinary and unprecedented extraterritorial projection of U.S. power 
you know, in which we now have 800 bases in more than 70 countries. So there are these like different arcs of American empire. And I think to understand what the United States is, we have to understand it not as a country that has never been an empire, but a country that has only ever been an empire, an expansionist capitalist project, an empire state from its inception that has drawn people in by consent and by coercion, including as slaves, to labor in its burgeoning agricultural and industrial machine, and projecting its power over long-range trade and access to natural resources around the world. And in this sense, the U.S. emerged as a new kind of colonial power in the world, one in which colonization was for the most part internal and assimilated into a nationalist firmament, which, has proved, more, which proved more durable than the effort to hold overseas colonies, which the United States did admittedly reject eventually. The United States rejects the idea of holding overseas colonies. And after World War II really becomes formally opposed to colonialism in that sense. But even it's, as it's formally opposed to colonialism, where there's, what, where there's a so-called blue water doctrine, in other words, the colony and the mother country are separated by an ocean, it never questions and actually rules out the possibility of anyone ever questioning the internal colonial project, which is a, also a continuous project. It's not a project that happens once in the past. We still have indigenous polities in the United States that are subjugated, second-class citizens, because the Indians become citizens after the 1920s, uh, not necessarily by choice, but they're declared to be citizens. Uh, but Indian communities and tribes still have treaty rights and still have claims that they make on the United States, which are, of course, again, you know, subject to ceaseless o overriding by, by American power, right? So I don't want to, I guess what I'm saying is I don't want to give the impression that the, the settler colonial project with which the United States begins has somehow ever ended, right? We, we, that we, it's complete. Or that it's ever complete. But at the same time, there's a way in which that is, that is the, the deepest layer of disavowal, right? That, that's the, we, we think of ourselves as a nation state, not an empire state. And yet the idea that we must be ceaselessly involved in all parts of the world and policing enemies that are, that are besieging us everywhere, potentially, I think comes from that long buried layer of a, the sort of settler colonial inheritance. And the historian John Lewis Gaddis actually made this very explicit after 9-11. And, 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 you know, he's an interesting figure because he's a sort of a, a center-right historian, a very strong cold warrior, and, you know, someone who you would, you would definitely see within the kind of the, the American exceptionalist idiom of kind of benign power used for, used for good in the world, although Gaddis is also, you know, has a, has a realist element in his thought. But after 9-11, he says, well, you know, we've kind of left behind the, the sort of Cold War, and now we're fighting new kinds of wars, and terrorists and non-state actors are like the Native Americans that once besieged our, our own territorial borders. But now on a global scale, it's a, it's a, it's a stunning thing to see a, a kind of a major historian admit that. But, but there it is. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. 
This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Authoritarian Personality by Theodore Adorno, Elsa Frankel-Brunswick, Daniel J. Levinson, and R. Nevitt Sanford, with an introduction by Peter E. Gordon. What makes a fascist? Are there character traits that make someone more likely to vote for the far right? The authoritarian personality is not only one of the most significant works of social psychology ever written, it also marks a milestone in the development of Adorno's thought, showing him grappling with the problem of fascism and the reasons for Europe's turn to reaction. Over half a century later, and with the rise of right-wing populism and the re-emergence of the far right in recent years, this hugely influential study remains as insightful and relevant as ever. This new edition includes an introduction by Frankfurt School scholar Peter E. Gordon and contains the first ever publication of Adorno's subsequent critical notes on the project. The Authoritarian Personality by Theodore Adorno, Elsa Frankel-Brunswick, Daniel J. Levinson, and R. Nevitt Sanford. Out now from Verso Books. Liberal hawk Michael Waltzer, justifying Israel's preemptive first strike in the 1967 war, asks readers to, quote, imagine an unstable society like the Wild West of American fiction. A state under threat is like an individual hunted by an enemy who has announced his intention of killing or injuring him. Surely, such a person may surprise his hunter if he is able to do so. What's amazing about this line that you cite in your book is that Waltzer is, seemingly unconsciously, stating that he can't see Israel as a settler colonial project because he can't see that the United States is one. And you also cite his liberal imperialist colleague Paul Berman, who put it, quote, if you reject the Indian Wars, you reject America. And you write, quote, Settler frameworks consciously blurred the lines between war and policing, investing ordinary citizens with an expansive police power. How did that happen? And how is that simultaneous disavowal and dependence on settler colonialism shaped U.S. empire? Well, to go back to the the point where I, I broke off with with Gaddis, um, he immediately goes to the Indian Wars as as a precedent, and we see the return again and again of the, to 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 the Indian Wars as a precedent for American war making. We see it in Vietnam, which is described as Indian country. The writer Robert Kaplan, who's writing around the same time as Gaddis, is going around talking to U.S. troops throughout the world and. And he says, when I, you know, when I meet U.S. troops, one of the first things they say to me is, "Welcome to Injun Country," you know. And it's in our tomahawk missiles and our Apache helicopters, and um, it just courses through the kind of the kind of military cultures where SEAL team members are having hatchets that are non. Uh, n- non-official weapons crafted for them and 
um, thinking about their own ritualistic warfare along the lines of, you know, taking, taking war trophies and things like that, which, you know, are all conceits of kind of savage war um, as it was understood in the Indian Wars. And we might say with the, the historian John Grenier that the Indian Wars bequeathed a lasting military orientation that codified ethical, legal, and vernacular distinctions between civilized and savage war as a, as a kind of core national experience in the United States. It's not just within the military itself, but, you know, it's, it's sort of within the kind of state understanding of, of war and of how fighting war of a certain nature kind of frees us to be able to act, um, again, outside the boundaries of, of any kind of legality or restraint. So, so you cite John Hughes torture memos, like John Hughes torture memos, which actually are going back to the Indian Wars, um, to to kind of think about, you know, what an enemy combatant is and what is owed to somebody who is not a lawful combatant of war. And the answer, of course, that they come up with is nothing is owed to such a subject. And just consider Jefferson's words in the Declaration of Independence, where he describes. Um, the free and independent states are in a state of constant warfare with the denizens of a territorial frontier who he describes as merciless savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. So in other words, it's people who have no rules of warfare, who therefore can be subject to limitless war, and limitless war that is not only conducted by established militaries, but also by militias and volunteers and so forth. So it kind of invests this power, again, in sort of ordinary citizens. And I was just listening to somebody the other day on Fox News who was describing the Soleimani killing and saying, well, you know, in America, we think that the default position is peace, this is, this is K.T. McFarland, a former Trump official. In America, we think that the default position is peace, but in the Middle East, they've been killing each other for millennia. Their normal state is a condition of war. And this associated idea that Arabs and Muslims don't value human life the way that the West does. So we shouldn't value their lives either. Which is the same thing that Westmoreland said about the Vietnamese. The Vietnamese do not know the value of human life. Um, therefore, again, they can be th their lives are not valuable. Their their lives are not worth anything. And you know these are these are projections. You know these are uh, these are a way of playing out a certain kind of fantasy. Uh, but a fantasy that is a very productive one and one that enables a certain kind of action. And it's really fascinating to go back to Walzer's quote, because Walzer is supposed to be a, leg a legalist and an ethicist, and he's talking about the Wild West of fiction. Incredible line. Incredible line. Yeah, it's an incredible line. The, wi the Wild West of fiction should be the basis for how we think about our use of force and violence, that we should actually imagine that this is the situation in which we are being, hunt we are being hunted by a merciless enemy. That's not how things work in the world. People have grievances and conflicts with each other, absolutely, and they commit awful acts against each other. But these awful acts are derived from histories of conflict in which violence has been exchanged 
from one side to the other and back again and back again, producing conditions of enmity and trauma and desires for revenge and retaliation. These are cycles that need to be understood historically, and that they're, and they're rooted often in real conflicts, real conflicts over space, territory, morality, ways of life, culture, and so forth. And if we don't understand the basis of conflict, then there's no way that we can actually think about how we might rationally adjudicate in ways that actually lead to a situation that might be peaceful. And in fact, what we see happening, especially with the American right, is a consistent insistence that our enemies are not rational, can never be trusted, and therefore must be met with extreme violence if necessary. People only understand understand the language of force. They only understand the language of force. Moreover, we are not capable of understanding what they want. And anybody who tries to do that is in some ways themselves indicating their sympathy with terrorists. Like, remember after 9-11, um, you know, Bill Maher, who's since become pretty pretty reactionary, you know, was was sort of saying something about how, about the, the kind of reasons. He said the 9-11 hijackers might... weren't cowards. Because people kept calling he them said they cowards, cowards, which it was just true. Yeah, people kept calling them cowards. <laughs> and the other thing, the, so I'm remembering, I'm kind of conflating a couple things. So he said they weren't cowards, and other people tried to say, well, you know, they may have committed an absolutely atrocious act, but they actually had their reasons, and their reasons were, as stated, American troops in Saudi Arabia, the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian, and the U.S. support for that the continued American presence in Muslim lands. I'm not saying any of these reasons are justifications. I'm not supporting them as justifications. I want to be very clear about that. We could debate them, and I would be happy to do that. My point is is that people have reasons for why they act in the way that they act. And it's not just... An explanation is conflated with apologia. Yeah, explanation is conflated, conflated with apologia. And in fact, the preference is, is to imagine that, no, these are, just, these are just mindless, merciless killers who can never be reasoned with, who can never be trusted. And, you know, that, that kind of approach does yield a world, I think, in which everybody feels insecure, everyone feels precarious and in which there is no reason to trust anyone. And there is more reason, arguably, to act in ways that create mayhem. And we've seen that happen, right? There are more, there are more Sunni-inspired terrorists in the United States, I mean, in the, in the world now, than there were when the United States began the war on terror, you know, in 2000 one or 2002, right? I mean, there, we haven't done anything to lessen or reduce the incidence of transnational terror networks or people inspired to commit this kind of violence. There, we've done nothing to accomplish that goal. Daniel Immerwer, who you cited earlier, talks about this in, in his book that Osama bin Laden has a 1996 declaration of war and then a 2002 letter to the American people in which he just exhaustively details his grievances against U.S. imperialism. And can you recall ever seeing that widely cited in the American press? 
<laughs> never, <laughs> <Just like. laughs> never. It's like it's like completely buried, you know. It's completely buried with the idea that you know there were ever. I mean, now we have maybe now maybe there's some kind of like sentimentalization of 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 Native Americans, you know, who were, you know, who were unfortunately, you know, tragically, you know, eliminated by the sort of progress of American civilization and expansion. And there's a kind of blurring of the lines, right? But, you know, throughout most of history, it's the same kind of thing. It's like, they're, they're violent savages. And that's all you really need to know about them. You know, and then, and, and, and that's, again, to go back to the Soleimani killing, you kind of hear the same thing. There's nothing, there's nothing complex about this person. There's nothing um, nuanced or a kind of morally ambiguous about this person who maybe, you know, may have committed terrible atrocities and, and may be involved in terrible kinds of repression against Iran's own citizens and may have committed acts uh, against other people that, you know, need to be accounted for, but that also was doing it within a framework of defending his country, right? Which is exactly how American policy works as well, right? It's like we do things in the name of our national defense and national security that are absolutely unaccountable and unethical, right? So so how do we how do we exit that kind of way of orienting ourselves in the world? I mean, the Trumps of the world, you know, are here to basically tell us, no, you can never exit this way of organizing yourself in the world. We live in a world in which it's it's dog eat dog, it's survival of the fittest, it's rule by the strong. And we, you know, as he as he loves to say, we have the strongest military that has ever existed on the planet, and you know, and we always will, and uh, nobody will ever challenge us. But you know, this this is just del- this is just delusional because because the strength really does not come from the force of arms, right? Strength comes from our ability to collectively. Uh, decide our fate and to cooperate and to develop the kinds of trust and relationships, you know, that allow us to flourish. And most of us really understand that from our own experience. But the the way in which the American military or orientation in the world works and the the tendency towards militarism as a solution, you know, has really let us down, you know, a very, very, a very narrow and dangerous and destructive path. It's hard to tell, I think, to what degree these settler colonial Indian War references are are conscious, because in many cases it seems to be that they are like unconscious reference points because their reference, thanks to genocide, have become less and less visible as far as at least non-native people in the country are concerned. But but slavery in the black experience is very explicitly and consciously instrumentalized in some pretty bizarre but powerful ways. You you write about a visit that I found fascinating made by Condoleezza Rice in 2005 to her home state of Alabama shortly after Hurricane Katrina. And she makes these remarks where she frames the abolition of slavery as what anointed the U.S. as a rightful global hegemon on a mission to spread liberty. And then incredibly, she compares critics of the Iraq war to Jim Crow racists. Here's the Rice quote. Quote, Across the empire of Jim Crow, from Upper Dixie to the Lower Delta, the descendants of slaves, 
shamed our nation with the power of righteousness and redeemed America at last from its original sin of slavery. By resolving the contradiction at the heart of our democracy, America finally found its voice as a true champion of democracy beyond its shores. And today, we face the same choice in the world that we once confronted in our country. Either the desire for liberty and democratic rights is true for all human beings, or we are to believe that certain peoples actually prefer subjugation. This is an absolutely remarkable thing that she said, making the U.S. history of slavery into an argument of for U.S. empire and comparing critics of U.S. empire to biological racists, essentially. What sort of history is Rice drawing on here in terms of how the Cold War resolution of the early civil rights movement in the wake of the defeat of the Nazis in World War II, how that, how that allowed for Americans to lie to themselves about America in this very particular way? And how does that compare to what we've been talking about in terms of, of the, the, the legacy of settler colonialism? You know, the, the tradition that Rice is directly drawing upon is what the historian Mary Duziak has called the uh, Cold War civil rights. You know, the idea that that the struggle against communism was a struggle of freedom against slavery. And in Brown versus Board of Education, you know, the famous Supreme Court decision that ends legal segregation in, in schooling, the Justice Department amicus brief is very clear. It says, we are trying to prove to the countries of the world that you know, a free people operate in this way, you know, without discrimination against their citizens. So the Cold War, you know, in, in its kind of universalizing ambition in the world, its ambition to establish the legitimacy of American leadership, you know, really um, pressures the unequal citizenship that's enshrined in Jim Crow. Right. And so Rice is drawing on that tradition, but then she's doing this very interesting sleight of hand where she's aligning Jim Crow with empire, the empire of Jim Crow, because Jim Crow is this coercive order versus the American universalist project, which is about bringing freedom to all people. And she really pulls the black freedom movement history through that ringer and basically then like aligns it with the, the American imperial project. But of course, you know, and I've written about this in some of my other work, the black freedom movement in its kind of in its kind of long history or movements of of black freedom struggles at different points was very ambivalent about American imperial action in the world. On the one hand, I think war making, you know, operated in a way that suggested the possibility of full citizenship to African Americans who participated in it from the Civil War onwards. And in World War I, W.E.B. Du Bois famously suggests that African Americans should close ranks with the country, despite the fact of lynching and racial terror and other things, in order to um, achieve the kind of citizenship that will come through kind of military service. But by World War II, African American organized publics are already very, very skeptical of that idea. And the Pittsburgh Courier, which is a you know big black newspaper, calls instead for what they call, what they what they dubbed the double victory, a victory against racism at home and a victory against fascism abroad. So they kind of split the difference. They say, well, we're willing to fight on behalf of the United States, but we're also going to fight for equality at home. 
And a lot of black veterans come back from World War II, people like Medgar Evers, you know, ready to organize in the South, you know, and of course, Medgar Evers is eventually someone who is assassinated um, by white supremacists. And there's a, there's a history of violence that is unfolding internally during the Cold War, you know, that is about racial equality and racial justice that Cold War liberals align themselves with and say, well, we have to support civil rights because we want to we want to be seen as, uh, as supporting freedom in the world. But by the time the Vietnam War rolls around, this, is, th- this kind of Cold War civil rights structure is in tatters. Um, and the best example of that is, is when King himself comes out against the Vietnam War. King, who'd refrained from criticizing the Johnson administration, comes out and, and, and makes the statement that you've quoted at different times in this interview where he says, you know, I regret to say that my country is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, and I can't denounce the violence in the ghettos, you know, while my country is uh, dropping incendiary bombs on Southeast Asia. And I recognize that the noble struggle for a war against poverty has now been made captive to um, the destructive kind of suck sucking out of resources by the military machine you know and king gives one of his most powerful speeches that he ever gave you know at the the riverside church in harlem you know when he comes out against the vietnam war and everybody should go and read that speech i think it it goes under the title beyond vietnam you know where he really lays bare how the american empire is uh, is is itself a project that is fueled and animated um, by kind of histories of racism, and and far from the empire of Jim Crow being the antagonist to the American empire as a kind of struggle for freedom and democracy, they're actually deeply braided and embroidered together. But in the case of kind of African American history, this has been a complicated issue for the reasons that I've said, because at times it seemed that by embracing kind of American nationalism um, and um, American power in the world, African Americans could claim a certain kind of status, right? And, and of course, the tradition that Rice is drawing upon, the Cold War civil rights tradition, is arguably then realized in the Obama presidency. Because even though Obama puts a more progressive gloss on things, you know, Obama really presents himself as the embodiment of American promise um, and proof, as he says in his, I think, his inaugural speech, that in this country, anything is possible. Anything is possible. It's the reconciling of the contradictions that, that Rice was talking about. Yeah, he's, he presents himself as a reconciling of the contradictions, as the embodiment of the kind of fulfillment of the promise you know, and we're still debating this with this 1619 project. You know, is the United States founded in freedom or slavery? Well, the truth is it's founded in both. And actually, we can't really reconcile that contradiction in any kind of definitive way, uh, as much as people might want to. But there's a, there's a relationship there that has at least been acknowledged and avowed as part of the ongoing struggle to say, as Obama would put it, make a more perfect union, that you have to reckon with the history of slavery, you have to reckon with the history of racial subjugation, and that this is somehow also filtered into our conversations about how we understand our conduct in the world. But when it comes to Native Americans and indigenous people and the history of settler colonialism, there is a much more 
a kind of a blanket refusal, and as you say, a kind of reflexive return to the sort of the metaphors and imagery and kind of modes of thinking that are associated with savage war. There's no there's no sense that actually any any reckoning or accounting needs to happen with regards to our conduct in that situation. To go back to Paul Berman, if you reject the Indian Wars, you reject America. Or to go back to Robert Kaplan, who's touring around the world, talking to U.S. troops, who call the places they are Indian country, and Kaplan sort of turns to the reader and says, well, we don't mean, they didn't mean that as a slight to Native Americans. <laughs> it's incredible he says that. Right? It's incredible. I mean, it's it's an it's amazing stuff, right? So we've never really we have this long conversation about slavery and freedom and about the place of African Americans in American democracy and it remains in many respects unresolved and there are powerful black radical and liberal traditions that have really pushed against American empire and as I said I've written about those. But in the case of the 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 history of American settler colonialism, there's almost been no deep engagement with what this has meant for American conceptions of freedom and how those conceptions of freedom have been limited and distorted and kind of ethically truncated by the settler colonial inheritance that sort of burdens them. You know, and it doesn't just burden them in some kind of abstract moral way. And that's sort of, sort of my point. It burdens them in precisely the ways we've been talking about it, where a legal theorist like Michael Walzer will go to the Indian Wars as a precedent for preventative war in Israel, which is at that, that very time, you know, extending its territory into the West Bank in the 60s, after the 67 war, which is the source of so much of the conflict in the region to this day. Or in a legal theorist like John Yu, who is turning to the to the the execution of Indian prisoners in the frontier wars in the late 19th century to justify how we treat so-called enemy combatants today. So these are not abstract, kind of shadowy things in the past. They're very, very present. They're very much part of kind of how contemporary dispensations around around war and force and violence are are being shaped to this day. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to reckon with them, right? And yet they operate in such different but complementary ways because if slavery is the original sin that allows the U.S. empire to redeem itself, weirdly and perversely enough, then settler colonialism as this eliminationist project is necessarily this original absence or something that must be disavowed even as it constantly informs, however subconsciously and through kind of institutional accretion, how this country operates. Yeah, I don't I don't have anything to really add to that. I think that's I think that's it's well put and it puts us at a kind of impasse, you know, that is very difficult to move past. I think we, you know, we would be getting perhaps beyond the scope of this conversation to start talking about what a kind of in, a politics of indigenous resurgence in the United States might look like today. But I think that's one place to start in kind of thinking for example around the around the struggle at Standing Rock a few years back, the, 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 the kind of continued effort to sort of think through what it would mean to really take seriously this history and what it would mean to, to engage in a kind of project of, of kind of repair or revision, you know, with regard to 
not only the the kind of racial past, but the set, the settler past. I mean, these are very, very hard and difficult things to really think through in a, in a, in a, in a short conversation, you know, and I think it's one of the reasons that, 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 that the left has been, you know, in some ways understandably led back to the, the reassertion of a kind of class politics as the, as the answer that under, under kind of politics that defends the working class and the working poor and that redistributes wealth that shrinks the military budget and that prefers and prioritizes national health care over things like war making, you know, everybody will benefit. And and that actually gets at racist systems of, of power rather than this kind of more symbolic reconciliation, this atonement for sin achieved through multicultural inclusion in the elite class, in the machine, in the, you know, halls of the Pentagon, in the White House, wherever. That's right. So kind of we've seen military multiculturalism in action in in the Bush administration and the Obama administration. You know, we've seen wars that have now been been framed around, you know, saving Afghan women, for example. I mean, we we've seen the deployment, the cynical use of um, and the weaponization of histories of racial and sexual subordination to basically shore up the empire. You know, and the, one of the things that we haven't really seen is a clear attack on class inequality, right? And so the return of the left to a, an insistence on class inequality and class struggle and class conflict, I think, is 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 salutary. But I but I think we we make a mistake if we imagine that the questions of settler violence and the infrastructures of racial violence and racial subordination are somehow either secondary, purely symbolic, moral issues, or issues that are actually going to be be, be somehow dissolved once we have a kind of, say, uh, more fully res- redistributive social democracy, uh, if, we get, if we even get there. And I'm all for us getting there. But these issues are not going to be dissolved because these issues are so deeply embedded in American conduct. You know, and really, this is one of the reasons why I think when you start to take on the question of war and empire, you can't get away from these issues. Because war and empire are certainly clearly about, as I've said before in this conversation, capital accumulation in the world, um, they're also very much about these um, these kind of histories of subjugation. I want to talk about that specifically with regard to the, the war on terror. You write, quote, instead of proclaiming a clash of civilizations, the prospect offered by disenchanted policy intellectuals like Samuel Huntington as a new paradigm for post-Cold War conflicts, the administration, the Bush administration, defaulted to the vocabulary of Cold War American universalism. The new wars were proclaimed as a defense of freedom itself, defined as a secular liberal order in which Christians, Jews, and Muslims stood united in the capitalist marketplaces and tourist meccas of the world. I think this is a really key insight and one that I get into a lot of depth on in my in my own book because it's so key to understanding how contemporary Islamophobia emerges as so central to American politics. Because 
it's easy to dismiss the the neocons utopian proclamations that they're they were not waging a war against muslims but rather for their liberation it's easy to dismiss that as delusional um disingenuous whatever but it but the the data shows it truly resonated because if if you look at republican if you look at public opinion towards muslims republican public opinion favorability towards muslims skyrockets goes through the roof after the 911 attacks like republicans have more positive feelings towards muslims after the 911 attacks than they did before but as the wars in iraq and afghanistan started to become broadly seen as as total disasters that's when islamophobia really took off and you write quote during and after world war ii u.s elites claimed the mantle of cosmopolitanism and universalism as the strategic and ideological requisite of global leadership my question is how did this this universal pretense how did that then fit into neoconservative universalism and then ultimately lead us to today with trumpist unreconstructed racism and islamophobia you know i think the thing about the liberal forms of universalism as they've they've often historically had embedded exclusion clauses as the historian philosopher domenico lasordo calls them you know the the exceptions um you know all men are create, created equal but and and i think there's a there's a there's the the liberal drive is to kind of expand expand the purview of the universal right to bring people into its into its ambit and uh that's certainly part of the kind of remit after world war ii you know where henry stimson says the challenge of americans is to kind of resist resist parochial fears um, and to see the what he calls the interconnectedness of american life with the life of the world including people who don't share our cultural heritage so there's a really this is in the 1940s, right? So there's all, and Henry Stimson is somebody who has a, a long imperial history. He's been in the Philippines. He's been, you know, he's even been, you know, he even has a memory of the Indian Wars, the last Indian Wars. He has a long, kind of long history as a military man. And he's really seeing something uh, uh, about the opening that World War II presents and the role that the United States is, is going to play. And there are always people who are skeptical of that kind of universalism. You know, there are always people who are basically going to say, no, no matter what you liberals think, we're never going to be able to reform the savages. We're never going to be able to make them like us. And eventually you'll realize that and then you'll come to us to do the dirty work for you. You know, and that dyna- that kind of dynamic plays itself out again and again and again and again. I mean, you, I've done so much reading in the archives of counterinsurgency, and the whole thing about counterinsurgency is, is that it's a liberal doctrine. Uh, I think Robert Kennedy calls it armed social work. And David Petraeus, you know, gives it a new life um, in the Iraq War, and some of the the sort of the sort of PhD generals who are who are kind of kind of rebranding counterinsurgency after you know the Iraq War goes so awry in two thousand four, you know that by a kind of intelligent and and sort of careful use of violence we can we can kind of bring people along the road to modernity. And and that's a kind of that's a kind of liberal dream, 
you know, but underpinning that liberal dream, I think, is 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 something sort of really faulty, right? Because because first of all, it's hard to use coercion in a in a creative and productive way. Um, and second, the coercion is already being being used in conditions that are radically asymmetric and unequal. And so it's going to be very, very hard to actually achieve the kind of closing of the gap that you envision. So oftentimes when that that liberal vision collapses in on its, itself, when it when it fails to achieve its sort of promised abundance for all, that this the sort of the disenchantment sets in and the racist explanations for failure reemerge sometimes even among liberals who will will sometimes embrace them which is to say well it really wasn't the fault of our vision we invested all this money and treasure in trying to liberate iraqis and they were so backwards that they not only didn't accept our our freely offered gift but but turned against us and attacked us that's right and so you know what 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 could you do and then of course you know the the people who are always always committed to that clash of civilizations view come along and say, well, you know, we were right all along. It, the the fault lies the fault lies not in us, but in the in the Arab mind or in Arab culture or in Arab masculinity or or the diseased mind of the Arabs, as Brett Stevens described it once. So so the ra- the racist explanations are sort of casually available. They're just kind of lying around. And so then you have this Trump official the other day saying, well, their normal condition is war. They've always been at war. They're a warlike people. This is sort of, you know, or even, even, you know, serious academics like Amy Chua, who talks about, you know, this sort of, this sort of tribalism, you know, suddenly you you hear, that's another kind of settler colonial trope, you know, these are, these are kind of elemental tribal conflicts. And it was, it was silly of us to imagine that, you know, we could, we could fix it with our, you know, with our kind of modern ways. Which is actually the inverse of or complementary to what Condoleezza Rice is saying, she's accusing people of that's right making Amy Chua's argument, <laughs> and and she she's saying that Amy Chua's argument is the is what critics of the war in Iraq believe. So these are the these these two positions actually need to be in some ways seen as kind of so, two sides of a coin, right? So a certain kind of liberal hubris and a certain kind of um, what we might call racist morbidity. They sort of align together. They 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 oscillate in a kind of um, in a kind of a kind of a historical dance, J- just as freedom and slavery are twinned. You know, a certain kind of American universalism and kind of the promise that comes through expansion, right, is is perpetually yoked to the idea that one of the things that expansion can bring is too much proximity to people who are you know, not like us, you know, and that we then have to retreat from. And that's what gets called isolationist. But but Trump's not an isolationist. Trump's, Trump just wants like more prophylaxis between the United States and the people he thinks are, you know, are the benighted. And of course, the border is the best, the border wall is the best symbol of that prophylaxis, that separation. You know, the idea that we could be contaminated or or undermined sort of by being too close to people who who are you know who are unworthy in some ways it's a reaction formation right it's, it's a reaction formation to the to to the kind of the prior 
the prior vision of a kind of a kind of a universalizing inclusion, which also fails because it's premised not only upon a kind of disavowed force, but because it is um, it is unwilling to recognize that it also rests upon a long history of inequality. Yeah, and that there's a racist particularism embedded within this professed universalism. Like, it's entirely unsurprising right. that a country that the Bush administration declared to be a homeland after 9-11, a term that was utterly strange to this country prior to that, that it would come to have a politics defined by right-wing claims that our borders are being invaded by racial others who pose an existential threat. There was this universal war mission, universally proclaimed war mission, justified war mission, but it was made fundamentally in defense of the homeland, which is not universal. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The the sort of this gets back to kind of what we were talking about, a kind of a kind of empire state that sort of embedded its kind of expansionist settler colonial firmament, expansionist settler colonial kind of kind of history within a nationalist firmament. You know, so so the the Bush administration is kind of schizophrenic. In some ways, it's all about the homeland, but then they're like all over the world, right? And then the Obama administration is sort of like trying to restore some some kind of more balanced version of globalism, in which the United States is a kind of stabilizing presence. But but then people sort of accuse him of kind of neglecting the homeland, making the homeland less safe. And then Trump comes along, and basically it's all about homeland politics. And fuck the world, right? Although, although he's finding himself now sort of the United States is enmeshed in the world. So what to do? You know, the United States isn't an island. I mean, that's that's Roosevelt's whole rationale in World War II. He says we have to be, we have to we have to go into World War II because we can't subsist as an island in a world that's now connected. And if that world is dominated by tyranny. It, the tyranny will eventually engulf us as well. So that's the original version of American globalism, you know, which is again an imperial vision. It draws upon the past history, but it's not that it, Roosevelt wasn't wrong and Henry Stimson wasn't wrong that we actually live in a world in which we're interconnected with other people, um, and where we have to actually figure out how to uh, how to engage with them productively and creatively in a way that allows all of us to flourish. And I mean, that's never been never been clearer but the liberal imperialists you know want to have their cake and eat it too they want to call their way universalism despite the fact that it's built upon a sort of long long histories of inequity that they also want to preserve and then the nationalists want to say like fuck the world but then they still are going to need things from the world so what happens then then I think what happens is you find yourself in a situation where people are fighting more. <laughs> and this contradiction was really was really manifest from the beginning in the Bush administration, if you think in terms of both this, this universal global war on terror, but a unilateral decision to invade Iraq. I mean, the U.S. did initially seek to win U, UN approval, but failed. But do you think that that this embrace of unilateral U.S. war that followed the, the so-called coalition of the willing, that the transgression became an end unto itself? Because it, it also seems like the same could be said about this push to defend torture more as a principle than any pragmatic effort to secure information. You, you write, quote, 
The exemption of the U.S. president and his proxies from international and domestic laws governing war crimes, such as torture, was less an expression of a specifically functional or instrumental rationality than a symbolic act aiming to expand the zone where power operates without rights, the main corollary of which is the constitution of new subjects without rights. And so Trump did not invent norm violation. My question is, what purpose did this rule-breaking serve, and what purpose does it serve today under Trump? I'm thinking of his pardoning of, of Navy SEAL Edward Gallagher, this absolutely twisted murderer who was reported by his own fellow soldiers who are also professional killers but do so within some kind of rule-regulated framework. It, it, this unabashed celebration of the most grotesque violence, so, something that in turn is recalls Nixon's support for My Lai Massacre participant Lieutenant William L. Calley. What is it with this this demonstration of impunity? Again, I think in some ways it, it goes back to the the sort of internal the internal logic or the domestic logic of foreign policy. You know, the way in which U- U.S. elites are in a kind of a kind of a low grade. They understand themselves to be in a kind of a low grade civil war. You know, and, and I think it was Newt Gingrich who was the, the first one to really. Uh, claim civil war as a framework for American politics in in our time. You know that he said something to the effect of, "This really, we are really in a domestic civil war, but fortunately, we can fight them through. We can fight it through elections, but but in other ways, we don't just fight it through elections. We fight it through kind of using foreign policy events as kind of proxy for." Uh, for domestic politics, you know, look what we could look, look what we can do, you know, look, look, who's the toughest, you know, look, who's the most, most willing and able to like, keep Americans safe, look, who's not going to like, kowtow to political correctness and the niceties of kind of human rights, you know, which are all these sort of fancy things that, you know, Europeans seem to like, but or old Europe, as, Don, as Donald Rumsfeld <laughs> called it, seems to like. Um, but, you know, we, we're, we are sort of a tough, you know, a kind of a tough frontier people. So a lot of it, it's kind of, it's kind of theater for domestic consumption. And I think it's an example of the way in which American foreign policy really is now a site of kind of decadence. Um, and again, in which the outer world matters less and the consequences of our actions there aren't really, aren't really subject to a, a strategic logic. It's kind of all force project, project, projection without strategy. It's not thought through in a bipartisan way, even though there's a bipartisan spirit to, to continually ramp up American military capacity. Um, I mean, when that and if that actually breaks, it'll be interesting to see, you know, bipartisanship was the sort of the sort of hallmark of the kind of Cold War. And like, that's partly what it meant to have an enemy, you know, that you could sort of all agree on. Um, There isn't an enemy that we all agree on anymore. Um, And the proliferation of enemies uh, in the world also corresponds to a kind of sense that we are more intensely the enemies of each other inside the United States, you know, which we never stopped being in some ways. I mean, this is a country, after all, that fought one of the bloodiest civil wars any country has ever fought, uh, never stopped being riven by racial and regional 
as well as class, intense class animus. So there is a way in which that, I think, is is the deeper truth to all of these questions that we're engaging with, which is that, as the famous dissident liberal Randolph Bourne wrote in the 1918, war is the health of the state. You know, it's the way in which the power of the power of a class is used to, you know, kind of rule the herd. And I think that you could say that that's as true in the United States as it is in Saudi Arabia, as it is in Israel, as it is in Iran. I mean, these are all in some ways, I mean, I think especially Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Iran more than the United States that are countries that are trying to uphold deeply illegitimate regimes of rule. And those deeply illegitimate regimes of rule rely on the idea that they are necessary to maintain in the face of external threats. And that's what made what what 9-11 did was created this this bipartisan unity behind the war on terror that was very real. Those of us who were anti-war at that point were in a terrifyingly small minority. That was the that's right. Worst moment in American political culture that I've ever experienced in my 37 years on this earth. And you, you cite Bush just chilling quote where he says that 9-11 made the U.S. nation, quote, as a single hand over a single heart. But but that's gone now. The bipartisan basis is fracturing on the ground, as it is with the war on immigrants. Like on the ground, there's sharp polarization and division, which is good. <laughs> it's deeply fractured. And the thing is, you have to remember, too, I mean, really, that this era all begins with the the election of 2000. You know, an, an election that could not be fairly and properly adjudicated. Um, the 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 what was it called? The Brooks the Brooks Brothers Rebellion. Brooks Brothers you know, Riot. The, <laughs> Brooks Brothers Riot, right? Preventing the vote count uh, recount in Florida, you know, and then legally sanctified by a Supreme Court that at, at that very moment really lost its legitimacy as any kind of neutral arbiter and has continued to do so ever since. You know, we've we've been on the slide in terms of our dysfunctional politics and 9-11 and the wars of the last 20 years when they were launched provided a kind of air sats unity that didn't really last that long because the underlying fractures are too profound. I mean, this is a country that after Vietnam never really reckoned with the fact that it had had engaged in a genocidal war in Southeast Asia at tremendous cost to the people there that they're still living out, at tremendous cost to its own soldiers, and at tremendous cost to its own society, that immediately embarked upon a war on drugs uh, and a project of prison expansion, unprecedented in the history of the world, locking up millions of people, producing a society in which tens of millions of people now have criminal records. Yes, to some degree, during the Clinton years, maybe having a a moment in which there was a sense of, well, maybe we can sort of use kind of neoliberal policy that favors corporations and the wealthy to do some progressive things, was really continuously engaged in policies that have distributed wealth upwards and have made ordinary people more and more precarious in their health, in their in their work, and in their neighborhoods, right? So so a society that's increasingly becoming riven by its economic policy, by its security policy, by its inability to reckon with its own its own politics in a functional way, 
I mean, after all, Nixon Nixon himself was impeached, and now Trump's impeached, and Clinton was impeached in between. So three impeachments over 50 years, m- several wars, mass incarceration, uh, a ramping up of panic around the border, which your your book will detail very well, I'm sure, once I read it. And I mean, we can go on and on um, about about what what ails us and how we're not facing it and not addressing it. And all in this world that 9-11 has supposedly made, but 9-11 is now a simulacrum. There there are people enlisting today who weren't even alive in 2001. And it, it's all perfectly exemplified by Trump tweeting this low-res American flag after assassinating Soleimani. Like, what does that even represent? Yeah, exactly. No, what 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 does it represent? We're we're kind of still waiting for what's 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 the next shoe that's going to drop here. You know, I think I think we're like a battle weary public, um, deeply so. And I mean, we haven't obviously, for the most part, been the direct having a direct experience of war. But it's like we've been living under a condition in which there has been war as the as the defining American experience of the last generation um, and and a war that has I think really decomposed our our politics and our our sense of civic civic trust and uh, cohesion and um, somebody needs to really change that I mean we we need to be able to change that somehow collectively and and I, I think the the only person who who I see who really has the has the clarity about foreign policy and about domestic policy to do that is Bernie. Yeah, I mean my last question is a serious political priority for the left is to sort of desacralize 9/11. It was this thing that was implanted as this rupture that was construed as this rupture in American history. And I think one way to start to do that is to acknowledge that the invasion of Afghanistan was wrong, which is still very, very rare, extremely rare. And I've been thinking about that for a long time. And I thought it was remarkable during the presidential debate when Bernie Sanders says that he was wrong to vote for the authorization of the use of military force. And he credited Barbara Lee for being the only right person, the only member of Congress to vote no. It was an awesome moment. Yeah, it was my biggest problem with him, frankly, that he'd voted for that. But though I could only hold it against him to such an extent, given that Barbara Lee was the only person to cast the right vote. And then the push for Iran is the seems like to me to be the opposite of this. This this push for war with Iran seems to constitute a fundamental denial of the disaster that the Iraq war and the larger war on terror has become. My last question is just how how do we make anti-war politics central to this left politics that we're trying to do right now? It's a tough one. Um, it's a tough one because I think m- m- people are really concerned about what is immediately in front of them. And it is hard to always connect the dots between this um, very sort of reckless and indulgent foreign policy that we have and indulgent spending on military that is justified as in securing us when in fact we have only become more insecure over the last several decades as our military budgets have ramped up i think all we can do is is make the arguments in 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 public and as i said before i think we went to some risky places in this conversation where we have to be actually willing to say you know my country is wrong you know and in in these ways and has been for a long time 
this is a United States is still a very rich country, a very capable country with amazing talent and with people of goodwill. And I think with people who actually don't want to wreak destru destruction and havoc upon the world uh, as we have been doing. And so I think the moment is propitious for anti-war politics to reemerge again. Um, there was strong anti-war politics before the Iraq war, even though the Afghanistan war was much more difficult to oppose, as you note. Um, and then that kind of got, that, that kind of got, got stifled. Um, I think it was central to Obama being elected, you know, and then Obama sort of did a little bit of a bait and switch where he sort of lowered the volume on the war on terror, you know, but sort of strengthened its, its architecture you know, and now, and then we have Trump, who in many ways was also, I think, elected as a as somebody who was seen as less bellicose. I remember the Maureen Dowd's ridiculous Donald the Dove column, you know, and Hillary Clinton clearly did herself no did herself no favor since she was real really was the one of the more bellicose figures in the Obama administration and really in many ways responsible for the Libya debacle, and of course herself said we would obliterate Iran and is, was closely associated with a lot of the neocons. I'm not entirely convinced that Hillary's policy would look that different, although I think it would have been harder for her to rip up the Iran nuclear agreement. So we have a political moment, I think the point is, in which the public at large is not supportive of a bellicose foreign policy. Whether the country can be manipulated into war or whether we have the political in, sort of institutional capacity to restrain the executive branch, those are, those are bigger questions if the executive branch chooses to escalate, um, because clearly that's a lot of what has been um, entrenched over the last 20 years, this kind of impunity that we've been talking about throughout this conversation. So I don't, I don't know. Um, another line of thinking that I have, though, is, is to again to go back to a thread in this conversation is that we we need to kind of connect up the inner and the outer wars. We need to sort of see how the American use of force and violence in the world reverberates internally. It reverberates in the easy availability of weapons of mass destruction in our own inside our own country. It reverberates in the ways in which crime and policing have been reimagined along the lines of war with police armed to the teeth with military equipment. And it's been internalized in the way in which we've come to think about our immigration policy, you know, and the southern border as a site of an invasion, you know, or infiltration or something like that, as opposed to people seeking opportunity who 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 may who may or may not be people who should be allowed into the country that's a separate question you know but the the framing of the 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 idea that our policies towards migrants should be organized through a security apparatus through a detention apparatus through a kind of a paramilitary force you know is all i think symptomatic of how we have developed a kind of war on terror culture over the last 20 years, which is very, very dangerous for us. And so I think making those connections, as I think your work does as well, is, is an important part of what it means to be anti-war in this moment. It, it doesn't just mean thinking about foreign policy. Well, Nikhil Paul Singh, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate the conversation. 
Nikhil Paul Singh is a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at New York University and the author of Race and America's Long War. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting the inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is a big help. Music.